you got your Bibles, would you open them up? Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today, and uh, we're going to be diving in to a part of the Christmas story that I really, really love and enjoy. Um, it has been an interesting little series. We've been walking through uh, some ideas that the Beatles have been preaching to us uh, a little bit in this season, and uh, I'm just wondering if you agree that Christmas has been a wonderful season this year. If it's been wonderful for you, you know, we, we had the song playing at the beginning of the service, uh, uh, simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Have you been having a wonderful Christmas time? I was thinking about all the reasons that Christmas can be wonderful. And then sometimes we find this time of year that the holidays are not quite so wonderful. But what is wonderful? Wonderful just means excellent, great, marvelous. Would you say the last couple of weeks have been Marvelous of a sort that causes or arouses wonder. I like this, amazing or astonishing. Has the Christmas season been amazing? Remember when Christmas was amazing? I love that Christmas has the potential to be amazing. Here's the problem. The holidays just seem to get complicated. They can often get complicated. <laughs> yeah, I like that, right? There's so many things to do. That's just the worst. Everything about that is hilarious. But the holidays get complicated. There's so many things going on and we miss the wonderful. What is it that complicates Christmas? Well, let me give you a couple of things that have the potential to complicate Christmas. First thing, problems that we cannot solve. Ever run into a problem that you didn't have the resource to solve? I know for me, some of the most frustrating problems aren't even my own problems. Someone else comes to me and they have a problem. And I wish in my core that I had the solution to their immediate problem. But we run into problems so often that we can't not solve. Sometimes we look at our own dilemma and we're like, ah, I just can't fix it. And Christmas begins to get complicated. How about this? How about people that we cannot control? <laughs> people ask me for years, I did youth ministry, about 15 years, student ministries. And people would ask me, what's the most difficult part of student ministries? And I'd say, oh, that's easy. I can tell you immediately. All-nighters. No, not all-nighters. <laughs> that's not even the worst event. Snow skiing is. But <laughs> the most difficult part of youth ministry is not snow skiing. It's not all-nighters. Here's the most difficult part of youth ministry. 15 years, I'll tell you straight up. The most difficult part is being able to look at someone who's about to make a choice that's a horrible choice for their life and be able to say, don't do that. That's a really bad choice. And then you don't get to control them. And then they make whatever choice. And then the consequences of those choices come and you're there and you love them and you keep on walking through it. Some of you parents have had teenagers and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Where you just don't, you're like, oh, I wish I could just control all your choices. The most difficult thing are people that you can't control. Here's what's hilarious. I've been doing adult ministry now for a little while. And guess what is really difficult about grown up ministry? <laughs> you can't control everybody, right? You can't just look at someone and say, stop doing that. People make choices. We know that those are true. So the holidays get complicated because we deal with people and we can't control them. How about this one? Expectations that we just can't meet. Isn't it funny when Christmas rolls around, we have expectations. It should be a certain way. It should look a certain way. Everyone should be having a certain attitude and things should just kind of fall into place. And we get frustrated. You know what the number one cause of anger is? Unmet expectations. If you're angry about something, I bet you can trace that back to somewhere you had an expectation and that expectation didn't get met. 
Now, sometimes those expectations aren't spoken, and so someone else around you is not a mind reader, so come on, help them out a little bit, and then you can come back off the anger. But the reality is unmet expectations lead to anger. So we find ourselves in this season that can get complicated because we're dealing with people and problems and expectations. And then we wonder, where's the wonderful? Isn't it supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year? And suddenly someone reminds us that Christmas isn't only wonderful because of what's happening now. Christmas is wonderful because of what did happen. The Christmas story isn't just about what's going on right now, but it reminds us what did happen. And sometimes wonderful things can happen even during difficult times. Here's the problem with wonderful things. After a while, we get used to wonderful things and they're not as wonderful as they were when we first experienced them. Let me give you some examples. How many of you have ever flown on a plane? Remember the first time you flew on a plane? Do you remember how amazing it was? You got into the plane, you were all excited. You fought for the window seat, even though you could only see the wing, right? And you're like touching everything. What's this barf bag for, right? And you're just like, <laughs> you know, you're looking at stuff. You know, no idea how dirty it is in there, you know? You just, you're just excited. It's wonderful. And the plane takes off, and you're like, and you're up in the air, and then you're thinking, man, you know, this journey, it used to take three days, and we'd have to stop in hotels and the family would be fighting and everybody would be grumpy. Now it just takes one day and everybody's grumpy. That's awesome. It's wonderful. Now I bet you got a flight to take. Your whole, your whole experience is different. You're looking at your clock and you're like, I gotta be there two hours early. They're gonna make me take off my shoes, right? You get in there and the play's delayed like 10, 15 minutes. You're like, are you serious? The Wi-Fi isn't working or there's no movie. Someone my size is sitting next to you and you got no room. You got a middle seat. Come on. And the wonder and the wonderful goes away. Something that used to be wonderful. Let me give you another example. Remember, remember when someone left the house and you had no way to communicate with them until they got somewhere else with a phone or they came home? Remember when you'd send... Ladies, your husband to the store, and then you'd remember that a hundred times you told him to get bread, but you didn't actually write it down. So you know there is no chance he's coming home with bread. And you had to sit around for the three hours it took him to go to the store to get four things and wait for him to come home with no bread. Remember how wonderful it was? Why are you laughing? Am I, am I hitting some truth here? Remember how wonderful it was the first time you were able to like, honey, yes. Did you grab bread? Ugh. And he'd go back and get bread. And you were so excited. It was wonderful. Now your phone rings and you're like, seriously, why is someone calling me? If you leave a voicemail, I'm deleting you from my, my contacts. Just text me, right? Just text me. Because it's not wonderful anymore. It's common. It becomes part of our life. Let's move away from technology. Let's think about relationships. Think about some core relationships in your life. And remember when it was just wonderful to see them? How excited you were when they walked in the room? How amazing it was to go to dinner or to go to lunch or to get coffee or to talk about your day? And all of a sudden you were around them for a long time. And no longer do you look at them and think, wonderful. Well, you do, but you say it differently. <laughs> wonderful. Ugh, just wonderful, right? And it's changed. 
And all of a sudden, their little idiosyncrasies are bothering you. And it's like, man, would you just lay on the other side and leave the covers alone or clean up your socks or whatever it is, right? And you lose some of the wonderful. When the wonderful becomes familiar, it moves out of the wonder and becomes normal. And we lose the awesome and we lose the amazing. And here's the thing. I think we do that with Christmas. I think you... I mean, how many times have you heard the Christmas story? Some of you grew up in church. Some of you have had, some of you have your great grandma's nativity set, right? Some of you bought a nativity that lights up and goes on the, on the, uh, on the ground outside in the front yard. Some of you were, were the nativity on a Sunday at one time, right? Some of you were the nativity, and you've heard the story, and you've told the story, and you've sung the songs, and you've declared it, and you know what? It's just not that wonderful, you got real life problems. You're trying to figure out why your Amazon thing hasn't shipped yet or how, you know, like you got real problems. You're trying to figure out how you're going to afford this holiday or you're going to, you're nervous you're going to see that person because it's the holidays that you haven't wanted to see and there's that issue and you're not sure if it's going to, you got real problems and all of a sudden Christmas hasn't been as wonderful as you thought maybe it could be. I remember the first time I really, we really blew it on a Christmas in our family. And lost some of the wonder. See, we did Christmas Eve. I don't know. Everybody does something different. We did Christmas Eve late. All the Puerto Ricans at this little house. I mean, we go 50, 60 strong at this little house. And it would just be an army of people. And I grew up with my grandparents until I was about eight. So, I, you know, that was like our house. And I lived there when I was little. And I remember how exciting it was. Everyone would come and it'd be a big deal. And my grandmother, who was amazing, just had this thing about keeping everybody at the house till midnight. And at midnight, we'd open all these gifts and there'd be thousands of gifts because there's, you know, 60 people and everybody's getting all these. I mean, just little cute stuff, but it was just tons. It was awesome. Well, eventually, you know, I mean, the kids were so little, we started saying, can we just, can we just set the clock back like and make, make it look like it's midnight, but it's not really midnight so that we could just get this over with, right? But my grandfather, his whole life, his whole working life, he worked on the uh, railway, now, I don't know exactly what he did, which is kind of weird, but, you know, I don't know, you're eight. Did you really ask what your grandfather does for a living? I just know he worked on the railroad. I know he was yoked, so I just kind of had a picture in my head that he just like, sat out there and hammered nails. I don't know if that's what he did, but I'm assuming that's what he did. But my whole life, that's what he did. And so he got up at like 3.30 in the morning and commuted in and go work on the railroad every day. So he was always in bed super duper early. So one Christmas Eve, we called him Poppy, Pop fell asleep. He just kind of went back to his room and fell asleep. And then we like moved all the clocks forward, did Christmas, and everybody left, and no one woke up Pop. And I, and I know, nicest guy in the world. And I remember he was so mad and so angry. Why? Because there was something wonderful. And we just kind of normalized it so much that it didn't seem important enough because he's tired, man. He's just a swinging sledgehammer all day, I think. I don't know. But, but we missed it. And that's what happens and I think sometimes we fall asleep on how wonderful Christmas is. I think sometimes we fall asleep on the story. You've heard the story a hundred times, a thousand times. I don't know how many times you've read it a bunch of times. And Christmas can do that to us. So today in Matthew chapter 2, I want to walk us into the story again. But I want to look at a couple of things that I really think are wonderful about the Christmas story. And I want to introduce you to a person and then a group of people. One who misses the wonder of Christmas. And another group who catches it. And then I'll challenge you to kind of figure out where you're at, and then we'll bring the kids in. They'll lead us in some Christmas carols, and we'll get out of here, and it'll be amazing. So if you got your Bibles, I'm in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to introduce ourselves to a guy named Herod. 
Now, most of you have heard Herod's name before. And you know Herod by this biblical account from this part of the story. You may not realize this. I believe there's actually three Herods in the New Testament. And so it gets a little bit confusing. History tells us this Herod was known as Herod the Great. That's a pretty good thing to be known as. Someday, if history wants to refer to me as Mike the Great, I'm fine with that. I don't want to do what Herod did to get that title, but if I get it, cool. <laughs> and matter of fact, if any of you want to start, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> so the Bible never gives us that name. What we know about Herod is he killed some babies. And we're going to get there in the story, and we know some, some of the things about him that were uh, horrific. But I'm going to give you today a little bit of a history lesson about Herod, because I want you to know who Herod is and where he sits. And some of the information I'm going to give you today is right from the scriptures, and some of it is from Josephus and other historical accounts of that time. And, uh, and I want to give you a little bit, because I want you to catch the wonder of what was going on in this moment. <clears throat> and so in order to tell Herod's story, i got to start by telling you who Herod's dad is, because he doesn't show up in the scriptures. But Herod's dad was a guy named Antipater, like anteater, but Antipater, right? Now, Antipater's important. The reason he's important is he has a really good friend who politically he aligns with, which creates for him a measure of influence. And Antipater's really good friend is a guy you might have heard of before named Julius Caesar. So we walk into the story of Christmas and we realize Herod's father was really good friends with Julius Caesar. Now, some of you were paying attention in high school or have watched TV since high school and know who Julius Caesar is, a little bit of what's going on. But I got to tell you what's happening in the story a little bit of history because I want you to see where this story, our text today, lands in history. Julius Caesar rose to power by defeating somebody in battle, and that person was Pompey. Pompey was a other, another general and had armies. So there's a civil war in Rome, and Julius Caesar wins. Now, Pompey was in charge of the area of Rome that covers Israel now, what we call Israel, Judea and, uh, and Jerusalem, right? When Pompey was in charge, he let them govern themselves, as a result, there's a group that's been governing for about 100 years now in Jerusalem over the town, and you may have heard of them. They were the Maccabees. And they came to power due to the Maccabee when Alexander the Great was defeated. They defeated the Persian influencers that were coming and rose to power. And for the last time in history, the Jews are self-governing, and the temple is running. There is a high priest who's in charge, and there is a king. So Julius Caesar comes to power and he looks at this thing that's happening over in Israel and he goes, that's really strategic location. It's like a crossroads. From there, I can get south, I can get east, but we need that location to be compliant. And if you know anything about the Jewish history, they're generally not compliant, especially to outsiders who are just using them for resources. As a result, he takes his buddy Antipater and says, I'm making you king over these guys. And you'll be, you know, it's type, a type of puppet king, but you'll be in charge for Rome's sake and you'll get taxes and do all the stuff that we need and make sure that we can be in control in this area. Well, Antipater has a couple of kids, but one in particular that we meet named Herod. Now, Herod's really important at this time for a couple reasons. One, if you think about it, the Jews at that time pretty much hated Antipater and Julius Caesar gets assassinated. 
After Julius Caesar gets assassinated, remember et tu brutas, right? He gets stabbed in the Senate. He's gone. After he's gone, Antipater mysteriously dies as well. They believe he was poisoned. And so the Jews could kind of keep self-governing. In this vacuum that happens when Julius Caesar dies, we meet a couple new people. One of the people that we meet is a guy named Mark Anthony. You guys know Mark Anthony, right? You've heard the story. He had a famous wife. Her, his name, her name was? Yeah, you can, you can interact with me. Good. Cleopatra, right? So Mark Anthony is married to Cleopatra. Now, Mark Anthony is best friends with Julius Caesar, right? And Antipas is, uh, Antipater, I'm sorry, <laughs> is friends with Julius Caesar. So Herod grows up friends with Mark Anthony. They're in the same, like, crew. They're buddies, right? Now, Mark Anthony, in this vacuum that happens from Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar has a nephew, and he doesn't have any kids, and so he makes his nephew his heir. And you maybe have heard this name, too. His heir is Octavius. So Octavius and Mark Anthony are kind of sharing control with another guy named Cassius of the, of the empire, well, I don't know how much you know about sharing control of an empire. It usually doesn't go well after a while. So they start off on the same team, but eventually they go to war. Now, Herod is aligned with who? Mark Anthony, right? That's his boy. That's their friends. They've been friends forever. Mark Anthony's down in Egypt, and Octavius is controlling Rome. I'm giving you a lot of history, but I want you to catch what happens here. Octavius goes nuts, defeats Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony and Cleopatra kill themselves, right? And solidifies all of Rome. Now, Herod has a problem because he has aligned himself through this battle with Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony has been his, uh, has been his guy. Mark Antony, I'm sorry, has been his guy the whole time. So now here's the thing. If you have aligned yourself with a guy who's been defeated, and now Rome is cleaning house, you only have a couple of options. Option number one is run for the hills, right? Option number two is stand and fight and wait to just get wiped out. What he does is one of the most brilliant strategic moves in history politically. He goes to Octavius and he throws himself at the mercy of the court. And here's his argument. His argument is, hey, my dad was loyal, ran things, and your uncle trusted him. I was loyal completely to Mark Anthony, Anthony, right? We lost. I get it. But guess what? We're loyal. I'll be loyal to you now. If you just don't kill me, I'll be loyal to you. So Octavius is so impressed with that loyalty that he tells Herod, I'm going to, because at the time Herod had been in Galilee, he's like, I'm going to give you Gal I'm going to give you the entire kingdom of Israel and you're going to run it for me. And while I solidify power, you'll be in charge over there collecting taxes for me and gathering everything. So after, after all of that happens, Octavius changes his name. And he changes his name to Caesar Augustus. Now that name's starting to ring a bell. Caesar Augustus is quite important. Is the name Augustus is uh, another way of saying great. So basically everyone wants their name to be great. So Octavius says, I'm going to be Caesar Augustus. Why do you know that name? Oh, because Luke chapter two, verse one tells you what's happening in history. It says in those days, who? Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Why did he do that? Because he's just defeated Mark Antony. He's just solidified the empire. He now has control from all the way out to France, all the way over to uh, Israel. He's got all of that, north and south, under his control. And he needs to know how much he's in control of. 
And in that story, we meet Herod, who has now been set up by Caesar Augustus as king of all the Jews. So you're with me on where we're at, right? So now what do we really know about Herod? Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of who? King Herod. Now you know who King Herod is, where he came from, what his background is. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So here's the stuff we need to know about who Herod is as he reigns. Now Herod becomes king. Here's something you have to know. Herod's family line are Edomites. Their great, 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 great granddad is Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? They fought over the birthright and Jacob swindled him over the birthright and got the birthright. All the blessing went to Jacob and then Esau got none of that, right? He traded it all for a bowl of beans. So his ancestor, they're related to the Jews, but they're not inheriting like the Jews, right? So he's an outsider, but he has the same culture. Furthermore, his family was actually conquered by the Jews during the Maccabean reign. And so they got assimilated. And when they got assimilated, they were forced to become Jewish by religion. They weren't Jewish by ethnicity, but they were forced to become Jewish by religion. Now, this is really important because in Herod's life, there is a constant struggle for him to be in control of a people group who don't respect him because he doesn't have the lineage to be in control of them. So this crazy tension is part of his life all the way through. You also have to recognize what he's doing here. His family generationally was conquered by the people that he has now politically moved himself to be conqueror of. He's become in control. Now, if you remember, his dad died a grisly death of being poisoned. So Herod is a little paranoid. He's in charge of a group of people who he believes have the potential to assassinate him at any time. So he does what any ruthless dictator would do in this season. He marries into the royal line, the Maccabee family. He marries into that line, and then he kills everybody else who's related to that. So nobody besides his wife now has any claim to the throne besides him. Not only does he do that, he starts becoming more and more paranoid. Anyone who becomes extremely popular, he thinks has the potential to supplant him, so he gets rid of them. In fact, later in life, he becomes so paranoid that he actually kills the wife that he married, even though history says he loved her, because he was so afraid that she had more claim or someone else could somehow get her from him, and then they would have claim to the throne. Not only that, he had some children with her that history says he killed them too. As a matter of fact, as he ruled, he got more and more manic and more and more paranoid. And he, history tells us he was married at least nine times. And each time he moved on, history tells us he slaughtered the family so that no one would have any, any claim to his throne. This is the man that we meet in Matthew chapter 2. He has claimed the throne he has killed all resistance. He's aligned himself with Rome. He is now the puppet king of Rome, but has Roman power and influence in order to do that. And he is paranoid that his family remain in control of the kingdom of Israel. 
So now we know a little bit more about who he is. We've known he's the villain of the story, but now you have a picture of who he is. Here's what else is crazy. History tells us he's Herod the Great. Why? He was an amazing architect. Now here's what happens when you have crazy, ruthless dictators with a lot of power and influence. They want to leave their mark. They want to build beautiful things and say, you know, look at this. Maybe they'll name it after me. And so he is actually single-handedly responsible for completely rebuilding and renovating the temple of God. Remember, he can't even go into the holier places. He's not even accepted by the priesthood or the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling class, or the Pharisees or the Sadducees, who are the religious elite. But he still cares so much about his legacy that he literally rebuilds the temple. It is said that Herod's temple was the most beautiful uh, incarnation of the temple ever. As a matter of fact, not only was he effective at building it, he was so respectful to the culture that he was trying to dominate. It, history tells us that he trained because he couldn't go into the temple to build it. So he actually trained the priest to become artisans and to become masons so that they actually rebuilt the Holy of Holies around the Holy of Holies so that when they knocked down the old Holy of Holies, the new Holy of Holies would be there and it wouldn't be contaminated because nobody unholy had been in the Holy of Holies. That was Herod. How cool is that? Not only that, he built sea, uh, a town up by the sea um, just to prove that he could because the terrain was really awful there. Just as an example of his architectural prowess and uh, effectiveness, he was renowned throughout the known world as an incredible, competent builder and an absolutely crazy, political, savvy guy. So that's the guy that we meet in Matthew chapter 2. So verse 2 we get to these magi that came to Jerusalem and they asked him, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, now that you have a picture of who they're talking to, I want you to feel the tension in the air because strangers have arrived and said, hey, we've studied the stars and they have told us that a new king has been born over the Jews says, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, I love this. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Surprise, surprise, surprise. This man who has murdered wives, children, he has wiped out um, an entire line of people who might have claim to his throne. He has no problem doing whatever it takes to hold on to his power. He has changed his who will inherit the throne from him time and time again to secure his legacy so that people will be loyal to him. Somebody walks up to him and says, hey, guess what? There's a new king that's born and he's not related to you. And his response is disturbed. Makes sense. It says, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, when the guy who's crazy like Herod crazy is disturbed, everybody also gets disturbed, okay? When you know, come on, you got that one family member and when they lose their temper, it's like, oh, now everybody's gotta be on their top of their game because here it's about to get crazy, right? Am I the only one that got that in my family? Okay, maybe I'm the only one, <laughs> right? So that's what's going on. Herod has, is there. Now, I love this. He's disturbed. And then what is his response? It says, when he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Now, I love this picture. You meet Herod. He's holding on to this empire through 
guile and viciousness and creativity even. And here comes these men, these wise men, and, and they say, where's the king of the Jews? And he, he has had, listen, he has had his entire life, the culture of the Jewish people forced on him. The stories and the prophecies and all of that has been forced on him. They were captured, his people were, and they were indoctrinated into Judaism, but they never felt like they were the recipients of all of this blessing. You see, he knew the Christmas story. He knew the prophecies. He knew what was going on, but he never believed any of that was for him. So he was disregarding it. So when someone comes and says, a king of the Jews has been born, he's like, where's the church folks at? Church folks, get in here. Tell me what's going on. These guys are saying something's happening. What does that mean? So he wakes up the church folks and he says, where is the Christ supposed to be born? And they quote to him from the Old Testament, actually from the prophet Micah. This is actually Micah 5.2 quoted, but it's here in Mark. And it says, verse five, in Bethlehem, sounds familiar, right? In Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. So here's Herod. His whole life has been about, I'm going to conquer the people who conquered my people. I'm going to become king. I'm going to get control of this. And if I got to partner with Rome, I'll partner with Rome. If I got to kill off some family members, I'll kill off some family members. If I got to do whatever it takes to hold on to this, I'll do it. His whole life has been about gathering this power and accomplishing this power. And he finds out that there's a prophecy that I'm sure he's heard his whole life that's 700 years old. And he's the lucky guy who's in charge when the new king shows up, you got to imagine him thinking, what are the odds that for 700 years we've been waiting for this prophecy and someone shows up and says, on my watch. So he does his move. He aligns politically. He uses force. He begins to mount a strategy. Verse 7. So then Herod called the Magi secretly. See, he's, a, he's, a, he's working deals. He says, come on, guys, just come over here. And it says, and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. See, apparently he wasn't paying attention. He wasn't, come on now, the wonder was gone. He was in the grind. He was doing what he needed to be doing, and he missed the signs. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem. Remember, he called the church people together and was like, where do they go? He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, if you heard this story, you know that's a load of nonsense. That's not the plan. But if you're used to murder, poison, you know, a little lie to some guys that you don't really know, it's not that big of a deal. So he lies and he says, you go to Bethlehem because that's where this whole thing's supposed to happen and then report back to me because I'm gonna go and worship him also. Now we get to the part of the story that gets really fun. We get to meet the wise men. And some of you are like, I know the wise men. Do you know the wise men? Verse nine, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. Listen to this. And I'll just read the whole piece here. And the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. 
Then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. Now let's talk about the wise men because they're fascinating to me. I love the wise men. I don't think we spent enough time talking about the wise men. Answer me this. How many wise men were there? We don't know. We don't know. How many wise men were there? We don't know. How about this? Where'd they come from? Same answer. We don't know. We don't know where they came from. Somewhere east. That, that encompasses a lot of territory. They didn't know the world was round. But east, and you just keep on going, you can do a whole circle. Somewhere east, right? We don't know. How long did their journey take? We don't know. Welcome to all the things we don't know. Now, for some of you, you are getting a little bead of sweat right now because you're thinking about your nativity. And you're like, I love my grandma's nativity. Don't mess with my nativity. Sorry. They seem to just show up. It's mysterious. And then just as mysteriously, they're gone. Here's one thing we do know. Their journey was a journey of faith. Their journey was a journey of faith. They went to a place where they didn't know based on some signs that they had seen. It's always wise. Come on now to take a journey of faith. Here's some things that just blow me away when I think about when I think about the wise men. Something that just blow me away. First off, they're not Jews. That's one thing we definitely do know. So we miss this sometimes in the Christmas story, but these are the first non-Jewish people to come and recognize Jesus, come on now, as the king of the Jews, to recognize who he is. They're the first time that we get outside of this ethnocentric story and we invite the whole world into the story about Jesus. It's the first time that this news is good news, that it's wonderful to the whole world are the wise men. That's amazing. The next thing that's amazing about the wise men, how did they know to go seek this baby? They saw a phenomenon in nature. You know, the scripture tells us, come on, that, that the heavens declare who God is. They find Jesus because they see that God is doing something amazing in the world. They're the first ones we know who just recognize something in the world is pointing me to the movement of a hand of God. How cool is that? Now watch their story. They go from seeing something amazing in the world and questioning. They end up at Herod's. And you know what Herod does? Opens the scripture for them. And the scripture clarifies for them what God's doing. So they see God moving in nature. They see God moving in the scripture. And then guess who they meet? They meet Jesus. How many amazing, wonderful stories start with something more has to be happening in the world. And then we get into the scripture and it introduces us to Jesus. And then we meet Jesus. That's the wise men's story. How cool is that? They're the first ones to have faith like that. They were wise in so many ways. They were wise in their decision to search for Jesus. They recognized that God was at work in the world around them. They were men of science, but they came to faith because they met Jesus. How cool is that? 
Super cool. Now, if you uh, allow me to, I'm going to push on your Christmas picture a little bit here. And I know some of you really care about your nativity scene, and so listen, it's okay to have your nativity set up however you want to have it. Traditions are good, but we got to push on something here a little bit, okay? It seems, as I read the text, that it is highly unlikely that the wise men show up ever at the manger. So if your nativity scene has wise men and shepherds high-fiving close to the manger, that's probably not the way the scripture describes what's happening at this moment of time. Now, there are some who love their nativity scenes and have argued vehemently that it must be the case because that's the way they bought the package. (laughs) And that's how grandma had it set up on the mantle. But I want you to see the story a little bit here because it's incredible on its own. Let's look at some of these verses. Look at verse two. The wise men, when they showed up, it says they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Now, a couple things jump out at me here now that I'm thinking about this, right? Number one, he's been born. I don't know how long he stayed in the manger, but he's already been born. Second thing. They saw his star when it rose, and that's when they started their journey. Now, we don't know how far they've traveled. The more modest estimations would be they were maybe from Iraq. Maybe they came five to 600 miles. Some think that they may have been from as far away as China in the Far East. So I want you to imagine not not the existence of wonderful airplanes. Their wonderful means of travel would have been camel a horse, a donkey, through the desert, maybe five, six hundred miles. So if they started when they saw the star, the odds that he's still a baby in the manger are starting to plummet. I'm just saying. So you're like, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> All right, I'm going to keep messing with you. Verse 7 said, then Herod called the Magi secretly, And he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. That means it had happened long enough ago that no one around could remember or noticing the change. And they had to tell Herod how long. Now, we haven't landed on how long, but they had to tell him how long they had been on this journey. Now, this answers a big question for me. Because as I was reading the text, I think someone actually asked me this question. And just kind of in conversation, they're like, why didn't Herod just go to Bethlehem and kill everybody? Bethlehem's like five, six miles from Jerusalem where they're at right here. That's like, you know, a pretty reasonable horseback ride with a couple guys with swords and just wipe everybody out. Here's why he didn't do it. Because he's just found out how much time since this whole thing happened. And the odds are if he goes in and just starts killing everybody, he doesn't know who he's looking for. It's been too much time. The kid's probably not there. So he just sends them off with a, hey, Give me a, hand, a heads up when you find the kid. Give me a heads up, right? So now read more carefully with me the end of the text here. Verse 9 says, After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, this is amazing. They left, headed for Bethlehem. They knew how to get to Bethlehem, six miles. Go on the road, Bethlehem, right? But it says the star moved as they followed it until they got to where the star stopped, which was over the child. 
Now, this is obviously no ordinary star. Welcome to a wonderful story. What we don't know is where did it stop? It doesn't say Bethlehem. It just says they went until the star stopped, and then there they found the child. Now, verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. That tells you something amazing has happened. If it was just go six miles to Bethlehem, it wouldn't have been something to be overjoyed about, right? But something amazing happened here. Verse 11, uh uh-oh. On coming to the house, did you see that? Uh Uh-oh. They didn't on coming to the manger. It wasn't on coming to the inn. It was on coming to the house. Wah, 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 wah. (laughs) They saw the baby. No, dang it. They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. They opened their treasures and they presented him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I'm just telling you, as you read through the story, it is fairly unlikely that they were hanging out with baby Jesus and the donkey that we don't know was there in the manger. None of those things were probably what happened. Here's one other thing that's pretty important here. We read last week through the Luke version, and we know that Luke was a historian and that Luke wasn't Jewish. And Luke was highly interested in expanding the kingdom, the gospel outside of Jewish culture. And we know that Luke spent time with Mary. And so we assume then that he got some of his account from Mary. And if Mary's telling him the account of the birth, why would she not mention these three guys or more because we don't know how many, that show up and bring her gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's awesome. Unless that wasn't part of the same story in the same moment. I'm pretty sure Mary would have mentioned it. I mean, she was pretty concerned that we got Simeon and Anna, that we got that information. So Bible scholars can argue till they're blue in the face, but it is most likely that the wise men didn't arrive and meet Jesus until he was a toddler. Well, why would you say toddler? Well, Let me give you the tag of verse seven. Verse seven, Herod gets the wise men together and he's like, hey, tell me when the star got up in the sky, right? He's whispering to him. So he has that data in his head and they had no reason to lie to him. In verse 16, if you jump a few verses down, it says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, remember they went home a different way? They had a dream and they were alerted and they had to change their path. They went home a different way. It says, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under. Why would he pick two years? Well, the scripture tells us why he picked two years. It says, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So what are you saying, Pastor Mike? I'm saying that we're probably about two years after the birth when this story unpackages. Herod thinks the baby's about two years old. He could do the math and say, okay, two years ago, there was a census because I realigned myself with Octavius and he became Caesar Augustus. And in that time, everyone had to go back to their home where birth of origin. And so at that time, 
We know that he was in Bethlehem, but he wasn't just happening to be in Bethlehem. He was in Bethlehem because his family's connected to Bethlehem. So likely he is somewhere in the vicinity of Bethlehem now because people didn't just up and move 30, 60, 80, 100 miles away from home the way that we could just do and the way that we do it right now. They stay close to home and close to their resources and they stay close to their family and close to all of those things. So somewhere in the vicinity of Bethlehem, there's someone who's two years old or younger and he's got to go. Welcome to the Christmas story. So what do we learn? We've learned some cool things. We've learned who Herod is. We've learned that he was unwise, even though he was great. We know that he had access to the Christmas source material. He had the closest access that anyone could ever hope to have of the Christmas source material. Yet, even though he had adopted the traditions of the Jewish culture to his family, it had not affected his heart and life. The wonder of the story was not there. It wasn't wonderful to him. We know that about him. We know that it happened right under his nose and he missed it. He was so busy solidifying power and taking care of his name and taking care of his needs and his wants and killing off anyone else who challenged them that he missed it. And we meet some wise men who had no tradition, who had no history, who didn't grow up in church, who didn't have a nativity set on their mantle. They just looked at the earth and they looked at the state of the world and they say, there is some intelligent force that's up to something. Let's find out what it is. And then they intercepted scripture and they risked it all to meet Jesus. Not only that, they were willing after meeting Jesus to risk offending a tyrannical ruler by changing their plans and going another direction. These are all the cool things about the Christmas story that maybe we've missed. So let me give you some truth and just invite you to some of the wonder of the Christmas story. Here's some truth. One thing that we've learned, not everyone comes to Jesus at the same time. Not everyone gets to Jesus at the same time. I don't know what your story is. The shepherds, they got an angel. They were there right in the moment. The wise men had to go on a journey the disciples didn't meet him until they were in their 30s. There were people who knew Jesus and were around Jesus that were even related to Jesus like James, and they didn't come to an understanding of who Jesus was until after Jesus was dead, buried, and resurrected. The Christmas story lets us know that we don't all get there at the same time, but we all, no matter what our background is, can get there. Come on. We all can get there. We also learn that not everyone gets to Jesus the same way. Not everyone gets to Jesus the same way. Some see God moving in creation and they begin asking questions and they go into philosophy and science and discover the nature of who God is. Some, like shepherds, hear from angels and get the story given to them directly, supernaturally. Some have a mentor. Some have a family member. Maybe for you it was a family member. Some come to a church service because they get promised to get taken to lunch afterwards and they hear a message about truth. Some are sitting in a hotel room and they open up a Bible placed there by the Gideons and they begin to read and they meet him in the scriptures. Not everyone gets there the same way. Something else we learn. Everyone in the story who met Jesus had to leave something behind. When they did, the shepherds, they had to leave something behind. 
They had to leave praising God over a baby. They had to leave worship and praise. The wise men show up and they leave gifts, expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. For some, they, they leave behind the resources to advance the cause of Christ. Some, like the disciples, left behind careers in fishing. They, they had to change their career path. They had to leave behind other ambitions to follow Jesus. We all leave something behind. I think about the things I left behind when I met Jesus. We all leave something behind when we do that. So how do we come to Jesus? The Christmas story invites us, no matter what your background is, to come and meet Jesus again. I love the way the psalmist writes it. Psalm 139. The Bible just says you invite him into your life. Psalm 139, 23 says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Here's what's incredible about the story. God isn't concerned how you got there. You get concerned about how you got there. God is okay of when you got there. Some of you are like, you don't know the path my life's taken. I know that that's a nonsense answer because when you got there didn't matter. And all of us, when we do get there, it leaves us changed. We leave something behind and God recalibrates our life and recalibrates our destiny. And that is the wonder of the Christmas story, that God spoke into time, into history, and invited us to be a part of his story. Wise men are still looking for Jesus. So my invitation for you this week is to be wise, to be wise. Maybe for some of you, come on now, you haven't been looking for Jesus through this whole season. Guess what? It's okay. You may find him differently. Maybe there's a need you can meet. There's someone you can bless or pray for. Maybe for some of you, you're like, my path has just taken me all kinds of different places and the Christmas story has nothing for me. I know that's a lie. I know the enemy would want you to believe that, but the Christmas story completely debunks that. Some of you are like, you don't understand what I've got going on. I do understand that it may cost something, but come on now. What you gain is so much greater. The kids are going to come in in just a second, and we're going to sing Christmas songs and close, but I just want to pray for you and pray with you, and we'll just ask Jesus to keep the wonder in this holiday season. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you intercepted history. The word God says at just the right time when we were still helpless, you came for us. You came for us. In just the right moment where historically all of the pieces had aligned. In just the right moment where just the right time you sent your son into the earth to accomplish what we could not have accomplished on our own. To restore relationship with you despite all of our mistakes. So God, your desire is that we would simply pray what the psalmist said. That you would search our hearts. That you would be invited into our lives. And if there's anything in us. We just lay it down and say, God, we give you permission to lead us this holiday season. I pray that our eyes would be open, that we would be wise 
and that we would understand the wonder of the holiday. In Jesus' name, amen.